Okay, the, the second proof, as I was saying, comes from Isaiah, the 8th chapter, verses 17 and 18. Let's turn back real quickly. I want to back up to the 13th verse and read to verse 18 to put it in context. Isaiah 8, 13 to 18. Therefore I will make the heavens... Wait, I better get the right back there. Sorry. Isaiah 8, now at verse 13. Jehovah of hosts, him shall you sanctify, and let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble thereon, and fall and be broken, and be snared and be taken. Bind thou up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for Jehovah that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom Jehovah hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from Jehovah of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Now, what is this, I will wait upon Jehovah, or I will trust in Jehovah? Why is that so significant? Well, we know that this is a messianic passage. Verse 14 speaks of the rock of offense, the rock of stumbling. Well, that's clearly applied to Jesus in Romans 9, verse 33, and 1 Peter 2, verse 8. Peter and Paul both quote that as being Jesus is the stumbling stone. He was rejected by the builders. They throw the stone out, and he becomes a stumbling block to those who don't want him. So it's a messianic passage. Recognizing this, we know that it's Christ being spoken of. The passage says Christ will put his trust in God. That God has made a redemptive, in the midst of judgment that is upon his people, God, for the sake of the one speaking, and for his children, will do a wondrous work of salvation. And this is going to come about through him doing what? I will put my trust. In God. Now how is it that Christ put his trust in God? In virtue of what does Jesus have to trust God? Well, it's in virtue of his human nature, isn't it? Do you think that God needs to trust God? No, it's only because of suffering. It's only because of humiliation and rejection and death that the Messiah needs to call upon God and say, I will put my trust in him. The idea of putting trust in God then emphasizes the experience of human weakness in the Savior. If he's going to realize the full potential of manhood in the midst of weakness, he must trust God. And in that, you see, he shares an attitude with us. The fact that Jesus had to call upon God and trust him shows that he was more than just God. He was the God-man. And as a man, he could suffer. And in the midst of human weakness, he would need to find his strength in the Lord. And then the third quotation is from the very same place. The fact that the author of Hebrews says, and again, and then quotes the, um, the very next verse in Isaiah, is interesting. That's not usually what happens in the New Testament. If you're going to have two verses together, you just, you just say, and it says, and you give the whole thing. The author of Hebrews says, no, I want you to get two bumps out of this. I want you to see that I'm making a separate point. And so that last verse deserves um, a comment as well. And what he quotes here is, let me read it, I am the children whom God hath given me. 
in, in a context of Isaiah where the world is under judgment, Israel in particular, but now more broadly we know that it's the world that's under God's judgment. Nevertheless, God has promised a Redeemer to whom God will give children. God will give children to this one who is trusting in him. In John 6, 37, Jesus speaks of all those whom the Father has given me. And in John 1.12, we know that in Christ we become children of God. And so the passage in Hebrews that quotes Isaiah is stressing, again, that we have this common thing. We are, we are bonded with Christ, as it were, because we are his children. If we are his children, we are of the same nature with him. Now he moves the argument the other way. Since he's the Redeemer, he must share our nature, but since we are children, we must share his. So all this points to the fact that, as the previous verse had said, verse 11, they are all of one stock. That is, there is a common human nature. And lo and behold, the author of Hebrews has understood the Old Testament very well, and it's given us some very subtle but dramatic testimony and evidence to the Incarnation. Verse 14, to move ahead. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might bring to nothing him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Is there any um, expression that can better uh, typify or stress the true humanity of Christ than the expression flesh and blood? There was a heresy in the early days of the church. It was already rampant, we know, because in 1 John it's condemned as of the Antichrist. That heresy says that the Son of God has not come into this world and taken on human nature. He is not truly flesh and blood. He only appeared to be so. The heresy is called docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, which means the seen. He only appeared to be human. Since he's the Son of God, we know God couldn't become a man. So he looked like he was a man. He may have talked like a man. He may even have felt like a man when you touched him, but he wasn't really a man. It was only an appearance, only an illusion. And the author of Hebrews is absolutely you know, draining any credibility out of that heresy when he says he took on flesh and blood. There was no appearance about it. He was truly human. And... Uh, those interested in the Greek here will get some pleasure out of noting that the author says, let me find my verse again, verse 14, that he himself in like manner partook of the same. Okay, since the, since um, then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same. The word um, partook is in the aorist tense, which will not mean a lot to everybody, but that indicates a particular event. It's not a condition, it's not an ongoing uh, effect, it's a particular event, it takes place at one time. And so that, that's pointing to his partaking of flesh and blood when he, at the point of the incarnation, became a man. But when it says that he shares in flesh and blood, it's the perfect tense which indicates something that has happened and now continues to have effect, which is an ongoing condition. Christ, once partaking of flesh and blood, now shares forever our human nature. A lot of people, I think, uh, 
I don't know, because of rather mystical ideas of the incarnation and the redemption and resurrection of Jesus Christ, tend to think that Jesus is no longer human. But he is, you know, always will be. He took on human nature forever. Not temporarily. It's not like he put on an old coat and said, well, I guess I have to do this for a while, but I'll be glad when I get rid of this. No, he took on human nature and forever has sanctified human nature with the dignity of his own person as the God-man. Now, what was the purpose of the Incarnation? Why did he take on flesh and blood? Put it very simply, why did he take on flesh and blood according to verse 15? Our 14. So that he might die. He took on flesh and blood that he might die. What is the purpose of the incarnation? I need to tell you a couple of things real quickly here so you can appreciate the orthodoxy of our, of our author. The purpose of the Incarnation was not some kind of sentimental association of God with men as a tribute to human nature. In the days of the Renaissance, Renaissance men thought of the Christian story as God saying how much he thinks of human nature. He takes on human nature. So he sentimentally, he wants to become a man because to be a man is so great. I mean, you read... You almost bark when you read some of this Renaissance stuff. It is so gushy and so ridiculous about the greatness of human nature. Man is something else, you know. And that's why God became a man. No. He didn't become a man to glorify human nature. He became a man to die. And on the other hand, um, modern Roman Catholic theology and even an evangelical Anglican like C.S. Lewis together have taught that God became man so that he might raise human nature to its highest evolutionary level. God, you see, it's the great descent that he might then take human nature back up, that he might move it along to its highest potential. That wasn't the purpose of the Incarnation. The author says here, he took on flesh and blood not to raise human nature but to die. Our children's catechism I, I want to commend it to you. If you have not memorized the children's catechism, I would wish you would memorize the shorter or larger, but uh, in these days we've lowered our sights. I will settle for the children's catechism. The children's catechism asks this question, how could the Son of God suffer? Perfectly good question. My children asked that of me. I still remember John asking that of me um, when he was just a little type, four years old. Well, if Jesus is God, how could he die? How could the Son of God suffer? And the answer of the Catechism is, Christ, the Son of God, became a man to suffer and die in our nature. How could God provide the perfect atoning sacrifice? Only if he took on a nature subject to death, and so he had to take to himself human nature forever. God became the God-man so that with respect to his human nature he might die. That's based right here in Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same God's judgment. Nevertheless, God has promised a Redeemer to whom God will give children. God will give children to this one who is trusting in him. In John 6, 37, Jesus speaks, A 
of all those whom the Father has given me. And in John 1.12, we know that in Christ we become children of God. And so the passage in Hebrews that quotes Isaiah is stressing, again, that we have this common thing. We are, we are bonded with Christ, as it were, because we are his children. If we are his children, we are of the same nature with him. Now he moves the argument the other way. Since he's the Redeemer, he must share our nature, but since we are children, we must share his. So all this points to the fact that, as the previous verse had said, verse 11, they are all of one stock. That is, there is a common human nature. And lo and behold, the author of Hebrews has understood the Old Testament very well, and it's given us some very subtle but dramatic testimony and evidence to the Incarnation. Verse 14, to move ahead. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might bring to nothing him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Is there any um, expression that can better uh, typify or stress the true humanity of Christ than the expression flesh and blood? There was a heresy in the early days of the church. It was already rampant, we know, because in 1 John it's condemned as of the Antichrist. That heresy says that the Son of God has not come into this world and taken on human nature. He is not truly flesh and blood. He only appeared to be so. The heresy is called docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, which means the seen. He only appeared to be human. Since he's the Son of God, we know God couldn't become a man. So he looked like he was a man. He may have talked like a man. He may even have felt like a man when you touched him, but he wasn't really a man. It was only an appearance, only an illusion. And the author of Hebrews is absolutely you know, draining any credibility out of that heresy when he says he took on flesh and blood. There was no appearance about it. He was truly human. And... Uh, those interested in the Greek here will get some pleasure out of noting that the author says, I'll find my verse again, verse 14, that he himself in like manner partook of the same. Okay, since the, since um, then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same. The word um, partook is in the aorist tense, which will not mean a lot to everybody, but that indicates a particular event. It's not a condition, it's not an ongoing uh, effect, it's a particular event, it takes place at one time. And so that, that's when he was partaking of flesh and blood, when he, at the point of the incarnation, became a man. But when it says that he shares in flesh and blood, it's the perfect tense which indicates something that has happened and now continues to have effect, which is an ongoing condition. Christ, once partaking of flesh and blood, now shares forever our human nature. A lot of people, I think, uh, I don't know, because of rather mystical ideas of the incarnation and the redemption and resurrection of Jesus Christ, tend to think that Jesus is no longer human. But he is, you know, always will be. He took on human nature forever. Not temporarily. It's not like he put on an old coat and said, well, I guess I have to do this for a while, but I'll be glad when I get rid of this. 
No, he took on human nature and forever has sanctified human nature with the dignity of his own person as the God-man. Now, what was the purpose of the Incarnation? Why did he take on flesh and blood? Put it very simply, why did he take on flesh and blood according to verse 15, or 14? So that he might die. He took on flesh and blood that he might die. What is the purpose of the Incarnation? I need to tell you a couple of things real quickly here so you can appreciate the orthodoxy of our, of our author. The purpose of the Incarnation was not some kind of sentimental association of God with men as a tribute to human nature. In the days of the Renaissance, Renaissance men thought of the Christian story as God saying how much he thinks of human nature. He takes on human nature. So he sentimentally, he wants to become a man because to be a man is so great. I mean, you, re- you almost bark when you read some of this Renaissance stuff. It is so gushy and so ridiculous about the greatness of human nature. Man is something else, you know. And that's why God became a man. No. He didn't become a man to glorify human nature. He became a man to die. And on the other hand, um, modern Roman Catholic theology and even an evangelical Anglican like C.S. Lewis together have taught that God became man so that he might raise human nature to its highest evolutionary level. God, you see, it's the great descent that he might then take human nature back up that he might move it along to its highest potential. That wasn't the purpose of the Incarnation. The author says here, he took on flesh and blood not to raise human nature, but to die. Our children's catechism, I, I want to commend it to you. If you have not memorized the children's catechism, I would wish you would memorize the shorter or larger, but uh, in these days we've lowered our sights. I will settle for the children's catechism. <laughs> The children's catechism asked this question. How could the Son of God suffer? Perfectly good question. My children asked that of me. I still remember John asking that of me um, when he was just a little type, four years old. Well, if Jesus is God, how could he die? How could the Son of God suffer? And the answer of the catechism is Christ, the Son of God, became a man to suffer and die in our nature. How could God provide the perfect atoning sacrifice? Only if he took on a nature subject to death, and so he had to take to himself human nature forever. God became the God-man so that with respect to his human nature he might die. That's based right here in Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death, he might bring to nothing him that had the power of death, that is the devil. The cross of Christ was the decisive confrontation between Satan and God. All of the, you know, the swelling battle of history came to a head right there. And there's a great irony in that, because you see, Satan, at the very point that he thought he had finally dealt the, the crushing blow, Satan did himself in. Because in having Jesus die, Satan lost all power over death. 
Because when Jesus died in my place and in your place, death no longer can threaten us. Well, you see, that's the power Satan had in our lives. The author here speaks of him as, as wielding the power of death, of course, only in a secondary sense. God is the one who determines life and death. It's God who imposes the punishment of death. But Satan, you see, has the power of death in the sense that those who sin and follow after Satan are cast into his realm, into the realm of death. And when he trips us up, and when he gets us to follow after him, when he gets us to rebel against God, then he's wielding the power of death in our lives. But he no longer has that power for believers. When Christ died, death died. A glorious title of John Owen's treatise on, on the redemptive work of Christ. The death of death and the death of Christ. When Christ died, death died. And when death died, Satan lost his power. Notice what happens. He has brought to nothing him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lives subject to bondage. Oh, what an accurate description of the human condition. The blight of man's whole lifelong existence is what? His fear of death. Been, there have been philosophers who said that's the key philosophical question. Why death? And in light of death, why life? What do, you, what do you do with that? Just think how we would look upon our existence so much differently if death were not a possibility. Take death out of the picture and ask yourself, what kind of world would we have? It would be completely different. Death, you see, is the pall, that, is, is the cloud that's over everybody and conditions everything in life. So the author says their whole lifetime are subject to bondage, the fear of death. But those who have been delivered by Christ have been liberated from it. We don't, we're not afraid to die now. The defeat of the tyrant then leads to the liberation of his captives. If Satan has been defeated at the cross, then those that he thought were his captives have been set free. In Matthew 12, verse 29, we don't have time to look it up, but remember how Jesus said that he must first bind the strong man, then he will spoil his house. Having, you see, incapacitated Satan, then he's going to spoil his kingdom. It's one of the reasons I'm a post-millennialist. That verse says Jesus is not going to be satisfied just to take care of Satan. He's going to destroy Satan's empire. And the way he did that is he set everyone free who was subject to that bondage if we know the redemptive power of Christ in our lives. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 and 57 says that in Christ the sting of death has been removed. In Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul says that not even death can separate us from the love of Christ. And so we've been liberated from the fear of death. Christians do not fear physical death. Christians do not wail for the dead as those without hope. Unbelievers go on and on. Unbelievers can't stand the thought of a funeral. But for Christians, those, who, those believers who die, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, fall asleep in the Lord. It's a completely different conception of death. Death is no longer an enemy to us because it's been disarmed. It's been defeated. 
It's been ruined by the fact that Christ died and, of course, rose from the dead. And so, it's one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. He might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For truly, not the angels did he lay hold upon, but rather he laid hold on the seed of Abraham. Now your translation may say, not the angels did he give help. The Greek can be taken either way. Lay hold on can mean in the sense of take the hand and help. Lay hold on can mean uh, appropriate, take unto yourself. And there's a long history of both interpretations and translations being used. Um, probably the one that says he took, on, took hold of their nature fits the passage a little bit better than the other. But both make the point that angels don't receive help from God, or on the other hand, angels don't have their nature assumed by the Messiah, but rather he assumes the nature of the seed of Abraham. Christ was born of the seed of Abraham. In Galatians 3.16, he is called the single seed of Abraham, the one in whom all the promises made to Abraham are fulfilled. And so Christ is the covenantal seed of Abraham. Even as God had covenanted to save his people, Christ came and laid hold on the nature of Abraham's seed so that he might deliver them from the fear of death. Oh, what a great passage. I'm going to stop. I'm, I'm sure I must be over time. Um, and we'll finish chapter 2 in um, a couple of weeks and try to move on into the third chapter as well, where the author will then begin to argue Christ is superior to Moses. Having made his point that he's superior to the Old Testament prophets, and now that he's superior to the angels, he'll now say he's superior to the, to the best guy of the Old Testament you can think of, and that's Moses. Okay, Pat. In Psalm 116, David says that um, he says, For God has delivered my soul from death, and my eyes became suspicious from the third again, says in verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Well, that really wasn't a new thought, was it? Oh, no. I mean, again, if they understood the. Well, if, I'm not so sure that they knew, but they certainly could have known and should have known because this is exactly what the Old Testament prophesied. So much of what the New Testament teaches is kind of like, well, I mean, this is, we're just repeating what you already know, right? And that's why it's so little snippets can be picked up and we, uh, the author can expect the flow of the argument to be um, discerned by his reader. But how come we saw, I still personally have a dread of death and that it's um, not unnatural to fear the unknown, also to be apprehensive about the possibility of pain, who knows how you're going to die and so forth. But still, there's a different attitude toward death on the part of the believer. In fact, some of the early church fathers had a tendency to say, if you do wail you know, at the death of a loved one, or if you do are just trembling before the prospect of death, you probably aren't a believer. Because in, in the believer's heart, the fear of death has been taken away. We, we will miss a loved one. You know, you, you've had people that you care for die, and even though you know they go to be with the Lord, you hurt, you know, for the loss to you. But you don't wail as, I mean, unbelievers are just, what do they have? I mean, 
what now? Where's the, you know, the, the, uh, the brave man that uh, Bertrand Russell wanted people to be in the face of this cosmic darkness? What do they do at a funeral? And there's no hope at all. There's no purpose at all. It just points to the utter absurdity of everything. Why did we live? Why did we have this kind of relationship? Why did we hope for things or have compassion toward one another? Why have loved ones if they're going to die, if we're just going to return to death? But we don't see it that way. Death is but entrance into glory now. Death is but a stepping stone to, you know, being in the presence of God. And the suffering that we have taken? The physical suffering? Yeah, we don't go to the cross in the sense of Christ did. No, we don't redemptively, but we should be willing to go to the cross. That's why Jesus calls us to bear our cross daily for him. We should be willing to go to whatever um, extremes of physical deprivation or suffering for the sake of the Lord. But, of course, when he did it, he did it to redeem. We do it because we're filling up in our body the sufferings of Christ. That is to say, we are identifying with him and for his sake suffering, whereas he suffered for our sake. Sure they do. They think you're redeeming yourself right. if you're a martyr or something like that. Yeah. Right. Any other questions? There's that question about two thirteen, the part where the author refers to the question also my question is. He went back to Isaiah 8, 13. First, I want to know, um, how do you, are there other passages in the Old Testament you could have chosen in order to, uh, to say the fact that he was the first mm-hmm. Yes, I think he could have. So, I don't, is there a verse that literally says in that passage, I will put my trust in him because maybe it's not the translation? Oh, you mean in Isaiah? Yes, the, um, I think my translation said, I will call upon him. That's just a variant translation for I will put my faith in him, I will call upon him. Well, which translation are you reading, Don? Okay, so Isaiah 8, uh, try verse... Is it 17? Okay, 17. Okay, I will wait upon the Lord means I will trust in Him or I will call upon Him. The author of Hebrews often uses the Septuagintal translation of the Old Testament. So you have two steps. You have the Hebrew original translated into Greek, which is used now by the author of Hebrews, and then he cites it in his own way, and then we translate his citation of the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Hebrew. So the fact that it comes across and I will wait upon him, I will call upon him, or I will trust in him, the concept is the same, but the, the actual words in English might be slightly different. Where is it the idea that that's what the author's putting is, is doing here by just using a phrase to, to call to mind a larger idea? Well, one, we get that idea because it, it's a phenomenon that is found so frequently in the New Testament. Secondly, we're driven to that when we see that on the surface these, these words don't seem to support his argument, 
But then when you go into the Old Testament context, then you be, then you can begin to see how that they're very appropriate. And so um, I feel fairly confident in saying that that's a technique that the uh, New Testament writers often employ. We, we do a something like that when we want to uh, encapsulate an entire argument. What if someone were wanted to, wanting to argue for, um, let's say, the death penalty for a rapist knows that he has to concentrate his argumentation on the exegesis of the verses in the Old Testament law dealing with that, but some of his hearers don't even believe the Old Testament law is binding. And so he makes a quick reference to, say, this book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics. Now, that doesn't prove everything, but what he's saying is, look, you go back there and look at it, and here's something that carries the weight of that argument. Now, I'm going to go on and apply something particular out of it. And uh, it's, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but there's a similar phenomenon. We expect uh, a whole body of literature or argumentation to be carried along with a reference to some particular part out of it, or maybe even just the title of it. And they did that in the days of the New Testament. They would cite a little snippet of a verse and expect that if you knew the story from which it's taken, the whole thing would carry along. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I call Jesus my Ebenezer, does that make any sense to you? What does Ebenezer mean? Yeah, okay, well, tell me, what's Ebenezer mean? It, it, well, it was a monument, but Ebenezer means stone of help. Help stone. Okay? And you remember the story of Ebenezer? How Samuel called Israel together for a revival service. In the midst of the revival service, the Philistines attacked them. They're totally beside themselves. How are we going to be delivered? But God thunders from heaven and drives the Philistines away. Israelites have to chase them to kill them. They don't have to confront them. And they come back, and Samuel raises the monument and says, Hitherto has God been our help. And he raises the Ebenezer stone. Now, if you know that, and I say Jesus is my Ebenezer, what I'm getting at is that the meaning of that passage is carried over even in the one word, Ebenezer. And so they do that in passages here. They'll take things which we say, boy, that doesn't seem to fit in. That's because I don't know the Old Testament story well enough or context well enough. One more question. He was. He was. He was referring to the children God gave Isaiah. But that procedure of giving children to Isaiah, what do the children's names mean? The one refers to what? Judgment upon the land, and the other refers to deliverance from God. And so the children God has given me are what? A sign that God will redeem his people who are under judgment. And so that is a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. Now I will say, if it helps you, makes you feel any better before we stop tonight, I will say that in this particular case, the author of Hebrews does assume a fairly advanced ability to interpret the Old Testament. I don't mean he expects you to do some kind of Kabbalah, some kind of you know, mystical insight, strange thing that no one could figure out in the normal reading of it. But I do, I do admit that he expects a very mature reading of the Old Testament in the way that it foreshadows the work of Christ. In this particular passage, you do have to do a little bit of work.
I do, because I'm just not as uh, familiar with the meaning of Old Testament passages as I ought to be. That's right. He says, uh, you know, you really need to press on. Stop being such babies about this stuff. Wow, what a <laughs> exhortation <laughs> to us. Doug, would you uh, close your prayer for us tonight? Well, we thank you again that you brought us to tonight your word. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings you've given us this week and this evening. We thank you, Lord, for cleaning us from our sins and cleaning us from the spirit that we praise your holy name, Lord, for all these things. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 this evening. We are going to commence our study at the 10th verse, but I'd like to read the entire chapter for the sake of giving you the broader context, and then we'll have a word of prayer together. So let's hear God's word at Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that were heard, lest aptly we drift away from them. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which having at the first been spoken through the Lord, was confirmed unto us by them that heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by manifold powers, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For not unto angels did he subject the world to come, whereof we speak. But one hath somewhere testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou didst put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he subjected all things unto him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we see not yet all things subjected to him, but we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste the death for everyone. For it became him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the congregation will I sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God hath given me. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might bring to nothing him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily not to angels doth he give help, but he giveth help to the seed of Abraham. Wherefore it behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And thus far God's word. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you this evening for the marvel of your word, the magnificent teachings that we find here, and so compacted together. There is so much, so many riches to be dug out of the scriptures. How we pray that you would enable us tonight in some measure to be successful in gaining many of those, that they might strengthen our Christian walk, that we'd understand you better and what you have done for us, Above all, that we would understand what it meant for you to become a man like unto us for the very purpose of dying, to save those who had no right to call upon you, who have no claim upon your bounty and goodness. We thank you for the grace you have shown us. We thank you for the scriptures that are ours to study. We ask that you would bless us in that study tonight, that you would bless your people, bless your church, Give us greater confidence in understanding you and also greater success in following after your word. We ask that you would bring glory to your name through our efforts then, because it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, Hebrews chapter 2. I made it my um, goal to finish the chapter tonight, and uh, after preparing a certain amount of it, I said... um, I'm only going to embarrass myself if I make that kind of a claim. So I won't finish chapter 2 tonight, but I'll get close. I hope. Very close. We're in verse 10, having studied in our last lesson at some length the significance of uh, the author of Hebrews quoting at length from Psalm 8 about man's insignificance in the world and yet his great significance in the eyes of God man's relationship to the angels, and in particular the perfect humanities rising above the angels, Jesus Christ being crowned with glory and honor and being set over the works of God's hands. We saw how Christ is the one who is to be Lord over all creation, and that though we don't now see the world subjected to him, we live in faith. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, and we trust the promises of God that he will make every enemy subject to his feet. Okay, so verse 9, if I can pick up that theme, but we beheld, we behold him who has been made a little lower than the angels, or for a short while, perhaps, uh, lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Because he suffered death, he is crowned with glory and honor. He must first suffer and then enter into his glory, a major theme of the Bible. And he did this so that by God's grace he should taste the death for every man. And I argued that that every man must be understood in the sense of every man covenanted to God, all of the elect, or perhaps better, for all kinds of men. He didn't die narrowly for just uh, the Jews or uh, for uh, particular color of skin or whatever. He died for all men. Now we begin in verse 10 tonight. For it became him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
is a marvelous verse. The word for at the beginning of it tells us that what the author is about to say explains more fully the purpose of the incarnation which he has been discussing. Uh, in verse 9 we've been told that Jesus for a short while was made lower than the angels. Verse 10 says for, and it's if I can expand further than I've uh, already done, if I can say more about the purpose of the incarnation, the author continues, for it became him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons into glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That's a long clause. You've got to listen from beginning to end. What is it that became appropriate? What was it that was appropriate for him, who is this, that, and was doing the other? It was appropriate that he should what? Shorten the clause so you get the subject and predicate next to each other. What is it that was highly appropriate? That he should be made perfect through sufferings. Exactly. Why does the author want to speak of the appropriateness of a suffering Savior? Why does he feel the need to get into that? Well, because the idea of a suffering Savior is a stumbling block to the unregenerate mind. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1.23? Let's turn to that because it really is going to be important for the remainder of our lesson tonight. Paul says, We preach Christ crucified unto Jews a stumbling block and unto Gentiles foolishness. The idea of a suffering Savior doesn't appeal to anybody. You know, we don't, uh, we don't like losers, especially in America. But I don't imagine anybody throughout history has been impressed with a loser. We don't like people who are criminals, those who have been you know, put down and found to be wrong. And so the notion that God should save us by having someone die a criminal's death is to the Jewish mind an utter stumbling block. They can't get beyond that. It trips them up every time. And to the Greek mind, of course, it's utter folly. You, know, you look at Greek literature, heroes are not losers. Heroes are those who, who rise above their own nature. You know, the heroic man is the large-souled man. He's the one who, you know, puts every ounce of uh, his effort into something and gains glory thereby. And so both Jews and Gentiles alike don't take well to the notion of a suffering Savior. But the author of Hebrews says it was highly appropriate. It was exactly right. It was fitting that he should made, be made perfect through suffering. You see, our author wants to show just how appropriate God's chosen method of salvation is. And God is now described very aptly as he for whom and by whom all things exist. God is the source of all things. God is also the goal of all things. Both of those you know, deserve explication. It would take longer uh, than I have this evening to do that, but when you think about it, everything comes from God, the author says, and everything is existing for the sake of God. Everything's purpose or aim is tied up in God. In Romans 11.36, Paul similarly tells his readers in that epistle, 
we can read this Romans 11:36 for of him and through him and unto him are all things to him be the glory forever amen now if everything stems from God and if everything serves the purposes of God if he is the one for whom and by whom all things exist then don't you see the incarnation and even the death of Christ the very way in which redemption comes about and the way Jesus had to die must be according to God's divine planning. If God is the source and the purpose of everything, then the death of Christ cannot have been an accident in history. The death of Christ cannot have somehow just been God making the best of a bad situation. No. The death of Christ must be exactly what God intended then. And this is why the author introduces this clause in the way that he does. In Acts 2, verse 23, we read that it was according to the determinate counsel of God that wicked hands nailed Jesus to the cross. You know, if you were a person doing PR work, you know, in Palestine in the first century, and you had Jesus as your client, you would undoubtedly have felt you didn't do a good job. I mean, what has happened to my client? He's being crucified and unjustly, and no one will even come to his defense. An utter failure, right? No. Exactly what God planned. It didn't it didn't uh, just fall out that way. You know, it's like, well, this is really too bad. Plan A didn't materialize. No, it's exactly what God had in mind. Because he is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. You see, salvation could not have been neglected, in a sense, by God in light of the fact that all of creation was made for his purposes. If God made all things and made them to serve his purposes, and yet he allowed his created purpose to be thwarted by Satan's rebellion and man's fall into sin, if God did not have a redemptive plan then he would be allowing everything to fall away from him into ruin and into judgment. And that would seriously challenge the sovereignty of God. Is God God? Well, if he is the one for whom and by whom all things exist, then we must see the appropriateness of how he has conducted the plan of salvation. It was appropriate then that in bringing many sons unto glory, that he made the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Those who are saved here are called what? What's the title of the saved here? Believers are designated many things in the Bible, but what is their designation in this passage? Sons, exactly. The saved are sons. And how is it we become sons of God? By adoption. In Romans 8, verses 15 to 17, we see the doctrine of adoption mentioned. Let's turn to that real quickly. Romans 8, verses 15 to 17. For you received not the spirit of bondage, again unto fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children than heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 
And so if we have come to Jesus Christ, who is perfectly the Son of God, then we've been made joint heirs with him. We've been adopted into the family of God. We are now adopted sons of God. And Galatians 4, verses 5, 6, and 7 repeats the same general theological truth there. In Romans 8, if you still have your finger in Romans 8, uh, let's look at verses 19 to 23, where we see that the glorification of God's adopted sons will bring the salvation and indeed the adoption of the whole created order. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to vanity, not of its own will, but by reason of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now, and not only so, but ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for our adoption, which is to say the redemption of our body. When the day comes that God redeems our bodies and we are raised from the dead, then our adoption will be completed and it will be perfectly manifest we are sons of God, and in that day all of creation will be liberated to, glory, to enjoy the glory of the sons of God. Okay, so this doctrine of adoption is a, a beautiful teaching of Scripture. In verse 10 of our passage in Hebrews 2, we read that it was appropriate then that the one who plans all things and created all things, in the process of adopting us into his family and bringing many sons unto glory, it was appropriate that he made the author of our salvation perfect through suffering. Christ here, my translation says author. Um, I really think a better translation is pioneer. I know that sounds... Captain comes closer. Yeah, in fact, I think I have that in my margin too. Captain is pretty good. Pioneer perhaps gives a little bit more even than captain. The idea of the Greek term is someone who goes before and opens up and then leads people through. Kind of like a man pioneering into the wilderness, if you will. He goes, he opens the trail, he opens the way, then he comes back and shows us the way. Christ has opened the way to salvation and now leads us to the goal. And how did he do this? Well, the Bible says for him, suffering led to glory. And it cannot be otherwise for us. God will put us through suffering that we might take steps unto glory. If Christ, the pioneer and captain of our faith, went that direction, then how much more must we expect to follow in the same way? It was appropriate that this pioneer of salvation should be made perfect through sufferings. That kind of language is unusual to us. We don't think of Christ as being made perfect because he was not imperfect. imperfect. There was nothing wrong with him in the first place. But you see, if we, tend to, if, if we think of being made perfect as correcting defects, then of course it, it is inappropriate. But being made perfect can also mean being brought to maturity. Being made perfect can also uh, uh, could pertain to achieving your goal. And I think the sense of our author here 
is that the pioneer of our salvation perfectly became our Savior, fully did the work of saving us. It turns out that the book of Hebrews has a great deal to say about the attainment of such perfection or maturity, the completion of salvation. Uh, let's run quickly through a large number of passages. Uh, the reason why I want us to look at them is because it becomes one of the themes of the book of Hebrews, this idea of being made perfect. Those who have been made perfect, or though, uh, that which is made perfect, has unimpeded access to God and communion with Him. To be made perfect means to be in the perfect fellowship of God. So, um, with that in mind, Hebrews 5.9 And having been made perfect, He became unto all them that obey Him the author of eternal salvation. See, having gained unimpeded access to God, having now attained perfect communion with God, He did this. Verse 14 of the same chapter. But solid food is for full-grown men, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Um, I believe that the term full-grown in my translation, yes, is the one in Greek that means perfect. Becoming full-grown or fully mature. Hebrews 6.1 Wherefore, leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Christ, let us press on unto what? Full maturity. Full perfection. Um, Hebrews 7, verse 11. Now, if there was perfection through the Levitical priesthood, so forth and so on, it would not be necessary for another priest to come along. Hebrews 7, 19. For the law made nothing perfect. Hebrews 7, verse 28. For the law appointed men high priest having infirmity, but the word of oath, which was after the law, appoints a son perfected forevermore. Hebrews uh, 9, verse 9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. Let me see. I'm not in the right chapter. Hebrews 9, verse 9. Pardon me. Which is a figure for the time present, according to which are offered both gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect, cannot give unimpeded access to God to the worshiper. Hebrews 9, 11. But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, has ministered for us. Then Hebrews 10.1, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw nigh. Hebrews 10.14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hebrews 11, verse 40. God having provided some better thing concerning us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter, of our faith. And uh, then one more, Hebrews 12, verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. 
Okay, so I mean, it's just over and over and over again, this concept of coming to maturity, which means perfect communion with God, unimpeded access to God, this concept of being made perfect is employed by the author of this epistle. And what we learn in Hebrews chapter 2 is that the pioneer of our salvation very appropriately gained such unimpeded access to God, was brought to perfection through suffering. Yes. Okay, now let's let's focus on this fact that he was made perfect through suffering. This was appropriate because it was by this means, first of all, that he qualified as the spotless sacrifice. Hebrews 4, verse 15 will stress that. For we do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one who is at all points tempted, just as we are, yet without sin. He suffered. And that was appropriate because he would die then as the spotless sacrifice in our place. He suffered everything we have and yet spotlessly. Secondly, it was appropriate because in suffering he annulled the power of Satan and liberated us as sons of God. Verses 14 and 15 in this same chapter are going to stress that. Since the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same that through death he might bring to nothing him that had the power of death. And then, for a third reason, it was appropriate, because the author says, Christ thereby became a compassionate high priest who can strengthen those who are afflicted. Verse 17, Therefore it behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Uh, verse 18, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to succor them that are tempted. You see, Christ has suffered everything, far more than we ever will. And in coming to perfection through suffering, he is able to sympathize with our needs and to be a faithful high priest. He is able to qualify as the spotless Lamb of God in our place. And he has, in so doing, nullified the power of Satan in our lives and brought us out of fear into liberation. Well, we spent a lot of time on verse 10, but it's really necessary, I think, because there's just so much fact in there. One more time, let me read it. It was then appropriate, the author says, for the one who has made all things and is the aim of all things, it was appropriate in his adopting sons and bringing them to glory to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect, giving them unimpeded access. God through the process of suffering. For both he that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all of one. This is going to be difficult if we have rigid categories in terms of which we do our theology. But I must point out that in verse 11, the sanctifying here is not what we usually call sanctification. It includes that, but it's much more. There's we usually think of sanctification as that narrow aspect of redemption by which we more and more die into sin and live unto righteousness. After we have been called of God, we've been converted, we've come to faith and repentance, we've been adopted into his family and justified, then we are sanctified, and then upon death we will be glorified and enter into the presence of God. 
Well, it's not inappropriate to think of sanctification that way. That is a, a common biblical use of the term. But here, sanctification applies to the whole process. That whole process by which we are set apart unto God for salvation. And what the author says is that um, the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that is the one who consecrates us or sets us apart, and those of us who are consecrated and set apart are all of one. The sanctifier being spoken of here is not the Holy Spirit. That's another unusual thing. In general theological categories, we think of the Holy Spirit as the author of sanctification. But in that narrow sense of the daily dying unto sin and living unto righteousness, the Holy Spirit is the author of sanctification. But here, where sanctification is understood as our total consecration to God out of the world into his kingdom, being set apart to his purposes, the one who does the sanctifying is not even the Father, but is specifically the incarnate Son of God. He is the sanctifier. And we have uh, a basis for speaking this way, even in the book of Hebrews, I mean, going beyond our text here. In Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14, we read, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling them that have been defiled, sanctify unto the uh, cleanliness of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, through the, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There the idea is that Christ's blood does a greater work of sanctifying than the Old Testament sacrifices. Um, Hebrews 10, verses 10 and 14, by which we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here, all of salvation is typified in this consecration unto God that took place by Christ's offering for us. Verse 14, For by offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, set apart unto God. Verse 29 of that same chapter. Of how much sore punishment, think ye, shall he be judged worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, whereby he was set apart. So repeatedly the book of Hebrews thinks of the sacrifice and blood of Christ as sanctifying us, as doing the work of atonement and rescuing and salvation. One more passage, Hebrews 13, 12. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. In every one of these passages, it's the blood or sacrifice of Christ that sets us apart or consecrates us as God's people. So, verse 11 tells us that both the one who is sanctifying us, that is, Jesus Christ our Redeemer, who has brought about our consecration unto God, and those who are sanctified, we were in the previous verse called sons of God. Now we are called the sanctified unto God, the consecrated unto God. The one who has sanctified us and the ones who are sanctified are all of one. Very simply put, they have one common nature. The community of human nature is being referred to. It's not saying that Christ and believers have a common spiritual origin. They all come from God. Because... In the first place, 
The sanctification of Christ is different in kind from our sanctification. He was set apart unto God, which is that he was as the perfect sacrifice acceptable to God. We are, sacrificed, we are sanctified unto God, but only by means of his sacrificial blood. Moreover, he's the son of God, we're sons of God, but we're not only sons of God by adoption. He's the son of God by natural right. And so it doesn't make sense here that, to, to argue that believers in Christ have the same spiritual origin, God. Many have taken the verse in that sense. They both have one origin. But rather, I think the verse is saying, both the sanctifier and the sanctified are of one type, of one stock, if you will. They commonly have human nature. And interestingly, that's why Christ is not ashamed to identify himself with us as brothers. You ever had the experience of being somewhere with friends or maybe relatives at some gathering or a party, and you got the impression someone was ashamed to be with you? Or they were making an effort not to identify with you? That's a tough feeling. I guess we, we've, we've all known the awkwardness and maybe the hurt that's involved there. So this is a very comforting verse. You know, Jesus is not ashamed to identify with us. You know, amidst all of the glorious things God has created, Jesus doesn't say, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, human beings, I had to redeem them. He doesn't. He says, I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers. I'm just like them. I have their nature. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. And by the way, that's based not simply in the incarnation, but that's based in our redemption. He's not ashamed to call us brothers because he became a man and died for men. Uh, let's look at three passages real quickly here just to see this. In, in Matthew 28.10, how are those who follow Jesus called? Matthew 28.10. Verse 9 says, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then saith Jesus unto them, Fear not, go tell my brothers that they depart into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Go tell my brothers. That must have been a very comforting thought. Jesus could have said, Go tell my disciples. Go tell my servants. Go tell these ones who owe everything to me. But the stress here was upon a family relationship. Go tell my brothers. John 20, verse 17. Jesus saith to her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended unto the Father. But go unto my brothers, and say to them, I ascend unto my Father, and your Father, and my God, and your God. Go tell my brothers. Okay. Then Romans 8, 29. Paul puts real emphasis upon this idea of being a brother of Christ. For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. When Jesus rose from the dead and thereby secured our redemption, he made us his brothers. He came into this world and took on human nature. It's not a shame to call us brothers now because he has redeemed us and made us his own. In verses 12 and 13, the author 
is going to prove his point or support his argument by three quotations from the Old Testament. I want you to look at them, and I'm going to ask you a question about them. The author has said that Jesus, the one who sanctifies us, who consecrates us unto God, is of one stock with us, and that's why he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. And here's the proof, saying, Psalm 22, verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brothers, in the midst of the congregation will I sing thy praise. And again, here's the second quotation, now from Isaiah 8, verse 17, I will put my trust in him. And again, now here's the third quote, this from Isaiah 8, verse 18, Behold, I am the children whom God hath given me. And what I want to ask you about those verses is, do they seem to support the idea? Do they seem to really give credence to the claim made in verse 11 that the author, um, the pioneer of our salvation and the one who is sanctifying us unto God is of one human nature with us and not ashamed to call us brothers? Well, the first one perhaps looks to be the best if you just take everything out of context. Just look at it for its own wording. I think when we look at these texts, our initial inclination is to say, I don't see how that proves anything, especially that middle one. The author says, and again, I will put my trust in him, quoting Isaiah. What does I will put my trust in him have to say about the incarnation? How does that prove anything? Well, I've led you on here, and, and maybe you don't have the same difficulty I do, so I'll just, I'll just confess to it. I have to admit, when I first look at it, I missed, I missed the point. But when all is said and done, what that shows is that I'm very unfamiliar with the Old Testament. The readers of this epistle, however, would not have made that mistake. And it's one of the characteristic features of New Testament use of Old Testament passages and Old Testament literature. But often, a very short snip of an Old Testament verse or paragraph is taken, and the author expects the entire context of the Old Testament passage to be carried over along with it. It's kind of like the, the phrase that is quoted is a hook, and it's pulling with it its whole context as well. But of course, that means the readers have to understand the Old Testament. They have to be familiar with its literature. And then that will have its effect. If it doesn't have the proper effect on us, I'm suggesting it's not because the author doesn't have a good argument, it's because we're not well trained to hear the argument. Uh, an aside here about proof texting. I believe in proof texting. That's that's a real bad thing to say today. I mean that's really you know, poo-pooed in theological circles. Oh, you're a proof texter. You know, a proof texter is somebody who cites a, a, a passage, you know, gives a, a scripture in verse for all the things he believes. Well, I think we need to do that. On the other hand, I do know why it's gotten a bad name, and that's because so many people tend to proof text in a terrible way, to treat the Bible in a very um, wooden and artificial fashion, and to take things uh, out of their natural setting and context and give the uh, impression that they mean something really quite different than what was intended by the original author and use that to prove some obscure theological point. 
the proof texting can be poorly done. You know who is the worst of the proof texters in this world? Who would you vote for as the worst dispensationalists? Are they the worst proof texters? Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, they're terrible proof texters. That is, they, they like to take a little phrase here, a little verse there, and don't take the whole into account. But you know who the worst proof texture is? Well, the Catholics are bad, okay. But I got a worse one than that. Who? No! Paul was a good proof texture. Terrible suggestion. Yeah, but I think that's, that, what I'm saying is that's usually our fault when we can't figure out why Paul's doing that. No, I think the worst protector of all, Satan. And that's scary, because Satan knows the Bible better than we do. Not, I don't say he understands it better than we do, but he knows it in the sense that he's got the phrases down. Does it take you back, as it does me, that when Jesus, during his temptation, when Jesus answers Satan with Scripture, Satan's replies to quote Scripture back to Jesus? Jesus says, haven't you read? You know, haven't you read? And so in the third temptation, Satan says, okay, I'll play that game. And he quotes from the Psalms, and he says, didn't God say he'd give his angels charge over you to protect you in all your ways, lest you dash your foot against the stone? Jump. Prove it. Jesus, again, quotes Scripture to show that Satan hasn't properly interpreted Scripture. But my point is, Satan can take a verse out of context. Satan can distort the meaning of God's word. And we'll do the same thing if we're not careful students of it. Well, now, back to Hebrews. If we are careful students of the Old Testament, we look at these three passages. They're glorious in the way that they support what the author wants us to see. And um, Time's not going to permit me to get into all the detail that I'd like to. But let me give you just a real quick rundown, I think, of how this works. First, he quotes from Psalm 22. Turn to Psalm 22. We may not be able to look at everything we'd like tonight, but, uh, you know, that psalm is so clearly messianic, I don't see how anyone could really miss it. Psalm 22, the quoted portion of it is verse 22. I will declare thy name unto my brothers, in the midst of the assembly will I praise thee. But what is this all, all about? Well, it's, of course, about the suffering and the victory of the Messiah. Look at the opening verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A foreshadowing of the cross of Christ. Um, look at verses 7 and 8. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, Commit yourself unto Jehovah. Let him deliver you. Let him rescue him, seeing he delighteth in him. Here we see the taunting of Christ upon the cross. Why don't you come down from the cross if you really are the Son of God as you claim to be? Verses 16 and 17. Now, let me see. Before that, verses 14 and 15. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a posture, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. There is the crucifixion of the Messiah. Verses 16 and 17. The dogs have compassed me, a company of evildoers have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may count all my bones. You can't help but see that the fact that Jesus' bones were not broken, but rather he was pierced. 
and finally killed them that way. They part my garments among them, and upon my vesture do they cast lots. Exactly what happened at the cross of Christ. In verse 18, oh, I've already looked at that one. But now when we come to verse 22, David, as the foreshadow of the Messiah, having spoken of his suffering, his humiliation and death, now comes into the discussion of the victory and the rejoicing of the Messiah. And the rest of the psalm is going to speak of that. That God will grant resurrection power to his son, to put it in New Testament terms. But verse 22 begins that section. I will declare your name unto my brothers in the midst of the assembly. Will I praise thee? This one who has been forsaken of God and cruelly treated by men will nevertheless praise God in the assembly. He will be raised to power. Now, Psalm 22, I think, is quoted then because, first of all, it aptly describes the joy of the Messiah and his redemptive victory, exactly what Hebrews has been talking about in chapter 2 so much. And then what it goes on to say is those who benefit from his redemptive victory are who? His brothers. Not a different kind of thing, not a different species, not a different category of reality, but his brothers are the ones who are going to enjoy his victory. And where will Jesus do the singing? In the midst of the church will I sing thy praise. Uh, one of these days I'm going to get around to preaching on just that verse, the significance of Jesus singing in church. You know, psalm singers cannot deal with this passage. This is the great embarrassment to exclusive psalm to be. Because it tells us that Jesus leads us in singing in the midst of the church. And Jesus doesn't simply sing the psalms. He does sing the psalms gloriously, better than we ever could sing them, and understands them and applies them to us. But he sings more than the psalms. In fact, what he is said to sing in Psalm 22 goes beyond the psalms. But anyway, that's, that's, that's for another day. The fact is that he sings to his brothers in the church. They are the ones who enter into the joy of redemption. So there's the first proof. 